My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today we're joined by former FBI agent and Army Intel officer, Gina Osborne. How are you doing today, Gina? Hi, Eric. I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, I first discovered you, you were on with a former guest of the show, Jerry Williams, and she has a, a fantastic podcast, um, FBI Retired Case File Review. And on there, I, I recommend everybody check it out if they get an opportunity. You go into a lot of your history and specifically a pretty big case that you worked in California, if I recall, correct? Oh, yes. I worked Asian organized crime when I first got out of the academy in Little Saigon, the largest population of Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam. Which is really cool and interesting because you came out of Europe. I think you worked in intelligence in Europe as well. Yes. And I wasn't an officer. I worked for a living, Eric. So I was a staff sergeant when I when I got out. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, I forgot. You got your degree while you were in. Yes. Okay. You, you got excited. You decided to go overseas, drive fast cars, and forgot about the degree until you were already in the Army. Yeah. I had two years when I went in, and then I got my uh, four-year degree while I was there. Great experience. Okay. Now, you're kind of basing – you're writing a book right now from what I understand. Yes. And also writing for Hollywood or, or TV shows. I am working on a television show right now as we speak. And by the caginess of your tone, you can't exactly say what it is or who it's for or much more, correct? Correct. However, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Hollywood <laughs> is an interesting animal. So, yes, there's uh, nothing definite until um, until it comes on TV, I think. Yeah, that's true. And even then... Uh, who knows if it goes beyond pilot. Sure. All right. So um, I think your book is called Becoming Unstoppable Through Chaos, Conflict, and Change. That's what it's called as we sort of right now. So uh, we'll, we'll have to see if that changes. But that's navigating chaos, crisis, conflict, and change. That's what the book is about. Okay. Now, is this, a, is this your memoirs or is it a, a set of lessons in life for someone to follow? Uh, a little bit of both. It has, it's a set of lessons and how you can navigate things that are out of your control. But then I insert experiences that I've had in those situations to try and help people make it go a, a little bit easier, especially now with the pandemic and everything that's going on around in the world. There is a lot of crisis and there's a lot of chaos. So I try and help people make, uh, get, get through that a little bit easier. Okay. I, I believe when you left the FBI, you were doing um, cyber, right? I was. For the last 11 years of my career, I was the assistant special agent in charge for cyber and computer forensics. Okay. So was that involved with um, cyber fraud and social engineering and that type of thing? Or was it something different? I so during the 11 years that I worked it, it was a variety of different things. It was computer intrusions, both on the national security and the criminal side. Mm -hmm. And then it was also cyber crime and Back in the day, that also involved crimes against children over the internet and mm. different frauds and things like that. But now for the FBI, cyber means computer intrusions all day, every day. So that's what they're working on. Okay. Is it because it's become such a big thing they had to specialize it out? Kind of like you could be a doctor at one point, but now you've got to specialize into some kind of medical degree. Is that exactly. what's happening? Okay. Exactly. I'm curious then. 
and want to hijack for a minute. First off, computer intrusion. Let's just take a minute and talk about that. What is the number one or top couple ways that people get into computers? I'm, I'm curious. Is the IT guy quizzing me, I wonder? I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's just, well, people need to know, and you're an authority. So it's yes, a, okay. Very handy. Uh, so I better have the question right. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say um, the weakest link is the human link. So it's still clicking on the link. I mean, that that's the easiest way for someone to get into your uh, computers and have malware go in there. So, yeah, so you have to be very, very careful as to clicking on that link because you don't want to have someone put malware on your computer and also go into shady sites as well. That's another good way to uh, have an issue. Okay, so essentially uh, phishing, smishing, and vishing. Yes. And by that, I don't know how, you know, how much was up at your time, but um, phishing being emailed, the oldest and a website, however ways. Um, smishing is newer with SMS, and that one's pretty insidious. A lot of people impulsively answer their texts without paying attention. And then vishing, I think, is relatively recent, and that's the voicemail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so we worked mostly national security computer intrusion. So one mm-hmm. of the cases that we worked when I was in Los Angeles was the attack on Sony Pictures Entertainment. So oh, that wow. was a huge catastrophic attack by a nation state and uh, on U.S. soil. So that was definitely something that we hadn't seen before. There was a lot of psychological warfare that was going on with that case because they had exfiltrated all of the files all of the data off of the servers, and then they were putting it out on Pacebin every few days. And so not only was movie content and scripts and information about the employees, their personal identifiable information, but also emails between the executives, and right. uh, that caused some embarrassment there. Yeah, weren't there like contract things and uh, statements that were made to each other that could put them in legal jams? Like um, they were doing different things with movies they weren't supposed to be doing or, or things of that sort. I vaguely remember some of this. Well, let, let's just say that uh, every few days people were getting very nervous about what was coming out <laughs> and the media was having a field day. <laughs> okay. So it wasn't quite Ashley Madison level, though. Uh, well, <laughs> it depends on who you are. <laughs> Nobody wants their emails out in the wind for the entire world to see. So how were they hacked in which nation state? It was North Korea. Uh, We identified North Korea in a very short amount of time. But it was interesting because that case really expanded from Sony Pictures Entertainment to the same actor hacking into the Bank of Bangladesh and stealing $81 million. And then also the WannaCry ransomware attack was attributed oh. to the same actor. So the FBI did an indictment uh, for on that North Korea individual uh, for all three of those cases. And did they ever capture him, arrest him, anything? 
Well, uh, we don't have an extradition treaty with North Korea. (laughs) I don't think we'll ever see him coming to the United States anytime soon. But uh, the statement was made that we identified who it was and uh, they were definitely put on notice. And at that time, President Obama had issued uh, or levied additional sanctions, economic sanctions on them as a result of it. Now, I have heard, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, that North Korea has an extremely active program and they are in financial dire straits. So they actually depend on hackers to steal money on a state level. Well, in uh, May of this year, I think there were 26 individuals, Chinese and North Korean individuals who had laundered $2.5 billion uh, that went to, according to reports that I read, because I've been out of the FBI for the last couple of years, uh, that the money was going to their nuclear weapons program. So it's a very interesting thing that uh, that they're doing in order to fund their 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 weapons program, allegedly. Well, well true. Um, they're doing something with the money. Yes. Um, uh, China, we're having a lot of problems with China, too, right now, aren't we? I mean, we just shut down, I believe, an embassy in Texas that was overrun with espionage, things like that. So did you see a lot of that while you were in? Well, I think it's no secret that intellectual property and um, R&D, that is something that's very interesting to uh, on the counterintelligence side. So, uh, so yeah, it, it's definitely a problem. I can't really go into that much more sure. about it, but uh, but yeah, I think you know I, I worked in the Cold War during the Cold War as a counterintelligence agent for the Army, and I think we're in a cyber Cold War right now, and uh, it's very interesting to me to see what is going to happen and what exactly is going to be identified as an act of war and what's going to be done about it when that happens or if that happens. So we'll have to see how it goes. This is my personal opinion, um, but I feel we're we've been a little asleep at the wheel and indulgent for a while. Do you see any of that too? Because China seems to be getting not less active but more active. Uh, you know, I can just say from based on what I had seen during my Anecdotal. eleven years sure. in charge of it, uh, was we have a lot of very, very savvy, smart people, not only in the FBI, in the federal government, in the military. The military has expanded its cyber cyber operations. So I, um, it's, it, it's like a chess game. You know, I had worked Asian organized crime in my career. I had worked white collar crime. I'd worked counterterrorism. I'd worked counterintelligence. But really, the cyber game was definitely a chess game because you have two very good, um, very smart and capable sides uh, sort of playing chess. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating to watch because I I just loved seeing these young, amazingly talented people going out and and uh, and doing their jobs every day. So that's interesting. You mentioned all the all the different fields you worked out of those different fields. Which one did you find the most challenging and or most fulfilling? 
You know, I think all of them sort of happened on me in in the same way. I got out of the army and I was assigned to the Orange County office of the FBI. Mm -hmm. And I had worked counterintelligence for six years. So I have all this great counterintelligence experience. And then I was given a case. I was on the counterintelligence squad, but they also did civil rights. And I was given a case where Thai girls were being brought into the United States and forced into prostitution in Little Saigon. I knew nothing about organized crime. I knew nothing about Asian prostitution. So I had to learn very, very quickly. And I met a detective with the Westminster Police Department where I wound up working with him for five years and his team. I was on a task force back then. And that's all we did all day, every day was work Asian organized crime, violent crimes, uh, murder for hires, home invasion robberies, extortion, loan sharking, everything that you can think of uh, when with these Asian gangsters back in the day. I'm curious about one thing, and uh, this might come off differently, but the Thai girls, were they American citizens or? Oh, no, 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 no. They were coming in from Thailand. How was it a civil rights case? And so I, it was an involuntary servitude. Okay. So they were so being held against their will. Do we have laws on the docket then that that do offer civil rights to those who are not necessarily civilians? And I'm I'm genuine question. I didn't right. know. Right. So unfortunately, while I was working that case, I couldn't get a Thai girl after we would go into the houses of prostitution and we would quote unquote rescue them, we couldn't get them to cooperate. And that was because they had families uh, in Mm -hmm. in Thailand. They were fearful of their life. And these girls had to pay a $40,000 smuggling fee in order to get out from under their debt. And then once they were out from under their debt, they had no other contacts here in the United States. So they wound up staying with the organization. But it was really um, an interesting time. But we were creative. We had to be creative. And that was working with the locals and, and having me on the team. So instead of going after them for the involuntary servitude, since I didn't have any witnesses that said they were held against their will, we went after them from the money laundering side. So we, when we went on one of the search warrants, one of the pimps, uh, one of the leaders in the organization had $100,000 in $100 bills in his residence. And then he also had $13,000 in $100 bills in his pocket. And it just so happens that it was $100 to engage in prostitution with the girls. Uh-huh. So, and he also just so happened to be writing his mortgage check and sending it across state lines. So that oh. uh, sort of helped me quite a bit as far as getting him not only for the money laundering, but for um, uh, a racketeering charge. So that's how we, we just had to be creative and, and working together as a team. And, and fortunately, you know, when you, when you take the money away and you seize all of the houses and the property, then uh, they lose power really quick. Very interesting. Now, uh, you mentioned that they came over here and they were in debt, the uh, girls or whatever. Is yeah. that a standard operating procedure, as terrible as that sounds, for human trafficking, that they will bring somebody over and somehow, I don't know, take away their passport, hide it from them, or prevent them from getting to others and then saddle up a debt? 
Yeah, Eric, that's exactly what it is that they did. They had to pay for their clothes. They had to pay for their food. So they had this $40,000 smuggling debt, but they thought they were coming to America to be hostesses, work in restaurants. They didn't know that they were coming over here for the purpose of prostitution. So it's it's very unfortunate. And um, they paid that debt off in a six-month period. And it, it was um, it was just really horrific conditions for these girls. But they were able to actually get out after paying it off because I, I've heard of like those who will get caught in a trap where they've got to pay for it to get over. And then and then, of course, everything they do, you just mentioned, you're paying for their clothes. So right, they'll right. get some cheap outfit from Walmart, say it's five hundred dollars. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what would happen is they would put these girls on a circuit. And so for mm. two weeks, they would be in little Saigon and then they to New Orleans, and then they would go to Miami, then they would go to San Jose. So they kept these girls on a circuit. And when you're here by yourself and you're making the money, um, unfortunately, some of them chose to stay in it. I mean, I'm sure some went back home as well, but um, but that's all they knew, you know, and, and they couldn't just go out and get an apartment and do all those things because they were held so tightly within this organization. They, they lived in the brothels where they were uh, working. I see. And of course, probably didn't speak the language. Exactly. Exactly. So they were trapped from, from the minute they got on the plane to come over here. Now, I'm not, I don't think you're working it, but from my understanding, Americans aren't necessarily immune from this happening themselves. Uh, you know, we, I, I never worked that. Um, okay. So I, you know, I'm sure there's a, hostage taking situations where, uh, I mean, look at Jeffrey Epstein, the Jeffrey Epstein case, mm. they would invite these girls, they would take them to his island or take them to his, his um, uh, ranch, I think it was in New Mexico, and the girls would be isolated. So um, it, it's really a, a manipulation game from the captors. You you did that on your podcast, right? Didn't you do a, f a series on Epstein or you are? Actually, I do once a month. I talk about I do an update on the Gielan Maxwell case. Mm -hmm. And so we just did it, I think, last week. So I'll, I'll do it in about three more weeks. But a lot of my listeners are very, very interested. Uh, the podcast is Behind the Crime Scene, a true crime podcast. And I go behind the crime scene and talk about um, talk with law enforcement officials, um, prosecutors, first responders, uh, investigators, and really talk about a notorious case. And then we talk about how that case impacted them. So we really humanize law enforcement. So how did the, how did the show come about? Gosh, well, I'm a storyteller and that's what I do. Uh, I like to tell stories. And when I left the FBI, I mean, I was very interested in writing. And so I got a manager and an agent and um, wrote pilots. But I really enjoyed the show because it's it's a form of storytelling. It, it really talks about cases we've done, uh, the O.J. Simpson case. In fact, my I had a co-host in the first season, Tracy Miller, and she was a law clerk on the O.J. Simpson case. So mm. she had Marsha Clark's boss come in on the show and we talked to him. And it was really interesting to hear about what haunted him about that case, because that's the question that we ask at the end of, uh, of, of every show. We talked about, we did another show on the boy in the bunker, and that was the little boy who was kidnapped off of a school bus. His school right. bus driver had been killed, and then he was taken into a bunker by a 66-year-old man, and he was held hostage, and the FBI's hostage rescue team had to come in and uh, rescue him. 
That was uh, another so Agent Osborne on that one, right? That was another Agent Osborne. Thank you for paying attention. Yes, not a no relation, but he is my brother from another mother. We'll just say that we worked is together he? Uh, when he was in charge of our Crimes Against Children program uh, in Los Angeles, and okay. so we've been friends ever since. Okay, that's a, a very interesting episode. Thank I you. In a while back. Okay. Um, so are you doing the podcast in a way because it gives you the control to work with a friend and not worry about, shall we say, clearing a budget or getting approved? Yeah, it's it's a grassroots program. I've learned a lot in season one, and now I'm doing it by myself, uh, hosting it by myself. And, oh, okay. uh, you know, I just really enjoy just answering people's questions. You know, I, I get a lot of people to send me questions. And uh, one case that we're going to be talking about was the Aurora movie theater shooting. Mm. Um, I've got the former special agent in charge of the FBI and the former chief coming on the show. And so that's going to be a really interesting episode coming up within the next couple of weeks. So really, it gives me an opportunity to sort of stay in law enforcement by telling stories and talking to all of my old friends from the FBI and the prosecutor's office. So it just um, and it allows me to tell a story. That's very cool. And a, a neat way to do it sounds. I guess it is kind of similar, but a different angle than um, Jerry's show. Yeah. So Jerry, she hers is she has a great show. I was on that show and uh, she talks to retired agents. And so I, I pretty much talk to, to everybody who's been involved in a big case <laughs> or anybody. In fact, we even had on the, uh, a case called the Aaron Runyon case where a little five year old girl, Samantha Runyon. I'm sorry, it was the Samantha Runyon case. Samantha was kidnapped and uh, raped and strangled and killed. It was just a terrible, terrible case. And we actually had her mother, Erin Runyon, come on the show. And it was a three-part series. And it really showed the prosecutor's angle and then also the victim's angle as well. So a heartbreaking story, but it was a really beautiful story because we got to see uh, Samantha's mother show her courage. And she created the Joyful Child Foundation to make sure something like that never happens to other children. So it was really a, a profound episode. Okay. I'm going to take a second talk shop here. How do you go about the show? Um, one thing is I do have true crime people on, I have you on, you're an FBI agent, um, and many others. But one of my worries is I never want to be salacious or get views just off of gore or horrible circumstance. I'm, I'm always cognizant that I don't want to exploit people. How sure. do you work at at treading that fine line, or do you ever think about that? You know, I think just having been in law enforcement for 28 years and and working with victims and seeing the pain of the victims, it's you, you just really have to be careful. And really, the story that we tell, although it's you know a big case is sure. involved in the story, but really, it's the story about the people who worked those cases. We did the BTK murder case right. and um, the BTK serial killer case. And it was interesting because Jeff Stanley, who was our guest on the show, he was an assistant special agent charged with the FBI. Mm. When he was 10 years old, he used to go out in the backyard with his cousins and they would talk about BTK and scare each other. And they would all run into the house. And then like 20 something years later, he winds up being the supervisory FBI agent in charge of uh, when they captured him. So it was really an interesting story. Okay. And actually I've had Jim Clemente on 
as well. You, you may have run across paths. I think you live. Sure, in the same I know area. Jim very well. Okay, one thing he does with um, his partner, I think it's Laura Richards, mm-hmm. that I think is very interesting is they like to name everything after the victim versus the killer. Yeah. I is that something you're cognizant of too? You know, to try to kind of focus more on the victim because. As a society, I do think we get excited talking about OJ versus Nicole right. Brown, right, things right. like that. Yeah. Well, on the OJ Simpson case, the OJ Simpson case, I mean, of course, everyone has heard of OJ sure. Simpson, but we start the episode out talking about what that case was really about. It wasn't about OJ. It was about domestic violence. And mm. it was domestic violence that led to everything that happened Um between him and Nicole and, and Ron Goldman. So I don't know. We all have our own styles on how we do things. Oh, sure, but sure. for me, it's more of just really wanting to tell the story, having respect for the victims. But really, it's more about the investigators telling the story and how it impacted them. Oh, it makes total sense. And OJ is an interesting case, too, because I feel like there's a prism on that. It's, it is definitely about domestic violence, but it's also about L.A., very yes. much because the yes. jury, the outcome that wasn't too far off from Rodney King, LA exactly. riots. So there, exactly. there's so much that was worked into that powder keg situation that I yes. think took it way beyond, I hate to say a simple domestic violence case, but it kind of was. If you take the names and everything out, that is not the most uncommon occurrence in our country, sadly. Sure. But it's, it was magnified a thousand times based on the players, but it's still, I mean, she, Nicole Brown Simpson had been a victim of domestic violence for some time. And we've heard, we've heard the 911 tapes. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of how we started it. But it was very interesting to talk to the prosecutor on it because, you know, he talked about how it haunted him and how um, it it wasn't, there was something, there was some irony that happened um, I think it was with dates, but OJ was arrested for the Las Vegas incident on the same date as I can't remember. I don't know if that was, uh, I forget what the date was, but it was mm. just really, really fascinating to uh, to hear the prosecutor speak about it. Yeah, that is wild. So going to your memoirs, um, what are what is an example of, let's say, a crisis or chaos that you had to pull through that we can read about? Well, you know, from where I come from, what chaos and crisis is, is a lot different from the normal everyday chaos and crisis that's going on in the world. I don't know. In 2020, it's not that different because it's been such an interesting year. It's universal. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But I, I think it's really important what I want to focus on. I mean, I'm, I'm coming from the experience of, of, dealing with kidnapping cases and responding when 9-11 happened, I was in the FBI and the Sony case and a lot of cases in between terrorism cases. When I worked um, terrorism, I was the supervisor over a squad that worked terrorism in Southeast Asia, um, terrorism investigations in Southeast Asia. So really it's about, it's, it's providing tools to people so that they can deal with the chaos and the conflict and the crisis that it's going on in their lives. And, and some of the chaos we invite into our lives. And so what I do is I start out by encouraging people to identify what chaos is real and what chaos 
are they that they're bringing in to it? Are they, you know, standing there with a hose to, to put out the fire or are they pouring gasoline on the fire? So really it's about understanding. And another thing is opening yourself up and, and eliminating things in your life that's going to allow you to deal with chaos a lot better. So many times we've had it up to here all the time and that's how we're living our lives. But when we eliminate some of those things, we're able to see around corners and maybe even prevent some chaos and conflict coming our way. Do you go into things like the locus of control and internalization versus externalizing things of that sort to help recognize and control the chaos? Like we have a tendency to see the world outside of us coming at us versus seeing the world outside of us perhaps being a reflection of what we are putting out into it. Sure, sure. Well, I talk about, you know, for example, what do we tolerate? What do we tolerate and why do we tolerate the things that we tolerate in our lives? I ask people to make a list of all of the things that they tolerate, whether it's in their relationships, whether it's at work, whether it's at home with the neighbors, wherever their life goes. And if you have a big list of the things that you're having to tolerate, let's eliminate and eliminate some of those tolerances because you can only handle so much in your life before you're overwhelmed all the time. And it's so easy for people just to get knocked off track because one thing happens and I want people to be unstoppable. So, you know, you can start with eliminating those tolerations and I help people go through that process. And you'd be surprised. I mean, when you walk into your kitchen, for example, and you notice, okay, the water's leaking, I've got a leak in the faucet. Every time you go into the kitchen, you're feeling that little added stress. And one thing or two things, that's not that much. But when we've got 50 leaky faucets surrounding us all the time, that's when it gets to be too much. So if we can start with the easy things and eliminate those tolerations, the boxes that are sitting out in the garage, then we can work on the relationships that aren't working. And you'd be surprised that the more you give up, the more space you have in order to do the things that you want to do. Okay. So it's about taking control. Sure. Yeah, but I, th I think it's, I mean, it's taking control, but it's, it's a lot of self work, too. I think there, it's not just a matter of someone saying, okay, I'm going to take control, and this is going to be good. I think there's a lot of self work that goes into it as well. And by self work, you mean like, uh, there's a reason that that faucet was left untended. There's a reason that I took on these extra responsibilities or things that are maybe stressing me out right now. Sure. Then there's self-sabotage. There's taking things personally. There's a lot of, there's negative self-talk. There's a lot of different things that we do to sort of add the gasoline onto to the fire. Okay. So how does that parallel with, shall we say, a, an FBI case or something? I, I would just, I'd love to hear how, you know, they can reflect each other because I'm sure. sorry, that's tough for my mind to, you know, make that jump. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think it's so it's being in a space that you're able to handle a major crisis. So that was something that his FBI agents had to do every day because you never knew what was going to come into the door. So I talk about prioritization. I talk about a variety of different things that I would do whenever a major event happened and it landed on my doorstep. So I was in charge of a major catastrophic attack. And really taking the time 
to evaluate, to prioritize, to observe, um, making sure you have the right people on the right seat on the right bus who are in your corner helping you get past these certain crises. So I go through what I would do in order to handle a crisis, and then I make it personal for people in their lives. Now, was this a self-created um, methodology, or is it something that you studied actually while in the FBI? I was in the military, for example, and there are, yeah, so were you, and there sure. are mechanisms and methods and SOPs, like I said earlier, standard operating procedures, et cetera, yeah. are... Now, I know you were in charge, so I imagine you created some, but then was some of this just handed down through the culture of the FBI itself or completely self-created? You know, I think a little bit of both. Um, by the time you get to your 25th year in law enforcement, you've got a lot of tools in your toolbox to, to deal with. And for example, one of the things is either you're there to help on a solution or you're causing a problem. So whenever I would build a team to create a solution for some sort of investigation that we're working on or what have you, you just have to make sure that you have the right people. Because if you have that problem person who's not helping, who's only hindering the investigation, you've got to get that person off the team. And I think the more I did it, the less tolerance I had for the people who weren't doing what they needed to do or weren't on the right seat in the right bus. So um, I think, yeah, I think it's just being a lot more effective with how you deal with chaos, conflict and change. Okay. And is that part of it too? The re repetition, like you said, the more you did it, I'm assuming the easier it got. It's sure. Like, okay. Exactly. You know, at first you would have a, a person or problem or issue and you would just dread it. You you dread going in. You just don't want to deal with it. You don't want to harm them or situation. I had a lieutenant back when I was in the army, and he said something that stuck with me. Didn't really care for the guy very much, but what he said was pretty smart. And he said that he thought of get, getting soldiers kicked out of the army as helping them. As helping the soldiers. Yes. He said the truth is that they're not really equipped or suited to do this. And I'm helping them to find something better in their life to which they can excel. Sure. Well, and when I say getting people on the right seat in the right bus, you may have someone who's really, really great at one thing, but mm -hmm. if they're not adding to the thing that you're working on, then that doesn't really help you. So as a leader, that was one thing that I really focused on. And I would always look at my resources just to make sure, because maybe someone over here is going to be happier and more productive and better at this job than they would at this job over here. But when we're dealing with our personal chaos and crisis and conflict and change, um, you know, we have to look at it in the same way where if someone, if we're in a relationship and somebody is creating chaos and we have to deal with that chaos all the time. Do we want to be in that relationship? Is there a circumstance or example you can give where you had a particularly tough time that has helped inspire you? To Gosh, do you know, I, I think I grew up in an alcoholic household. Mm -hmm. And so I knew what chaos was. I knew what crisis was. And I knew what created it. And so I think that's really, as a kid, when you have to deal with that, it's a terrible thing, but then it also teaches you how to stay calm 
and navigate situations so that um, so that it doesn't kill you, <laughs> so that it doesn't drag you drag you down. And I think that's where the unstoppable part came from because under no circumstances should I have gotten to where I am today based on how I grew up. Um, I was a cocktail waitress uh, before I went into the military. So I went from cocktail waitress to counterintelligence agent pretty much over a six month period through basic training and AIT. So it, it's just about having the courage to be able to overcome and not let major incidents slow you down or get in your way or stop you from accomplishing your dream. So resilience type of. Absolutely. And I would argue, and maybe I'm wrong, that there are parallels between being a cocktail waitress and being a spy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Except for I didn't have, uh, I used to have cocktail waitress nightmares, but I never had spy nightmares. <laughs> okay. Well, that's because you didn't have as much control. But I mean, uh, obviously, both of these uh, cocktail waitresses are a form of sales. You're having to, I think you were also, didn't you sell pharmaceuticals at one point too? Uh, oh, for a very short time. After I got out of the okay. military, I, I became a director of distributor sales for a, for a vitamin company waiting to get into the FBI. Okay. So uh, all of these skills, I, I really think actually have more value than people would necessarily give them. And I think that's important because it's easy to almost put down a position or to think less of a position, but it can be very challenging and you can get extremely important life lessons out of some of these mundane positions best job well, i ever had was a dishwasher there you go yeah yeah <laughs> well i think my childhood taught me how to be a chameleon and taught me how to be different people in different situations to keep the calm and to keep the cool uh being a cocktail waitress you're right you have to multitask so that was very very helpful and um and and really being a spy, especially back in the 80s during the decade of the spy, I mean, having that opportunity to be undercover for for nine months out of the year to work the biggest cases, uh, espionage cases in the European theater, that was just a dream come true. So, But I had to go through basic. I had to eat a lot of dirt. <laughs> and, mm. and you know what that's like, I'm sure. sure. Um, but yeah, we, we have to, you know, we, we can't let things get in our way to, to stop us. Basic is very fun in its own way. Ah, uh, really? Yeah. It's, what was fun about it? It teaches you to eat the dirt and laugh about it. I mean, yeah. the fact is that basic training, um, I learned the secret to that pretty early on, within a week or two. Yeah. And it's a, a lesson I've taken for life. Sure. And it's essentially this. When I went into basic, it was like, oh, my God, you know, day one is horrible. I have eight weeks of this. <laughs> yeah. What am I going to do? And then somebody told me, they said, they can only screw with me, so, screw with you so long before lunch. Yeah. So basic training and the military, this is something I've carried for my entire life, is sure. I don't worry about a far distant date. I just try to make it to lunch. You can only mess with me so long during lunch or until lunch. And then after lunch, well, there's going to be dinner. Well, then I we've got bedtime. You can only mess around bedtime. And before you know it, three weeks are gone. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. 
Yeah, I was uh, my bunk bed because I was in a bay of 40 women and we all slept in bunk beds in the same big room. And my bunk bed was the closest to the drill sergeant's office. And Mm. I think I was the second or third oldest in my platoon, maybe the Mm. second oldest in my platoon. So whenever he would have to, whenever he would need a witness or an accomplice, whichever the case was, (laughs) because he would never be alone with any of the female (laughs) privates, uh, he'd call me in there. So I got to witness firsthand leadership in the military dealing. <laughs> and, and it was, and to me, it was fascinating because I didn't take it personally. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't take a whole lot personally. And even back then I still didn't take things personally. And when you don't take things personally and you just watch it, you're just an observer of the mm-hmm. crazy that goes on. Uh, and you don't, you're, you know, you're not going to be perfect at whatever they, they throw out in front of you. Um, yeah, you're right. You can, you can observe and, and uh, they can only do so much to you <laughs> during that time. Yeah. But I wouldn't call it fun. <laughs> it, it's funny. Yeah, no, it and was definitely it's something funny. you're not having. It's one of those things where you don't enjoy it while you're in it, but you really look back to it. Yeah. And oh, it's yeah. a cool story. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and and the uh, the interesting, the creative way the drill sergeants had in behavior modification, that oh, yeah. in and of itself should be a Harvard class on leadership because <laughs> it's yeah. absolutely fascinating to watch. What well, is basic indoctrination training? Indoctrination yeah. quite literally means brainwashing. Oh, sure, sure, but you know what? <laughs> I took the I took that creative behavior modification and I've, I've used it multiple times as a leader in, in law enforcement, just because, uh, you know, you can only deal with things in a certain way to get people's uh, attention. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I had problem people, but still, you know, you definitely want people to come around and see, uh, your perspective on various things on how things can be done. But, uh, yeah, I was definitely creative, uh, as well. Okay. And, now to start wrapping things up, you're no longer in the FBI. You're no longer in this. It's a semi high pressure, intense thing. Are you bored? No, I'm having fun. I've always wanted to be a writer. That's been my dream since I was in seventh grade and I would write Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days episodes for fun. And I would send them the <laughs> Paramount pictures and they would send them back to me by from their legal department telling me that they... I, they won't accept unsolicited materials. So uh, I get to create all day. And that's what I do between the podcast and and writing the book and the different projects that I'm working. And then I also coach people. I'm also on the board of directors for the Girl Scouts of Orange County. So that gives me the opportunity to see amazing young women and the future leaders of America. And that inspires me every day. So yeah, I'm having a ball. Awesome. And you don't miss it at all? You know, I, I miss the people. Um, I don't miss the the bureaucracy of it, you know? I mean, I loved my career, but I, I, I did it for 28 years, and I'm, this is my second act. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the things that I'm doing now. Well, perfect. And we can find out more about you at GinaLOsborne.com. So GinaLOsborne.com, if anybody is interested in signing up uh, and getting on the list for, I can send you updates about the book and when it's coming out. And then also BehindTheCrimeScene.com 
that's for the website. And uh, please subscribe to the website. I'd love to uh, have you uh, listen. Awesome. And I think you're on Twitter as well, right? I am on Twitter, Behind the Crime 2 at Twitter. And then also my personal one is Gina L. Osborne. Awesome. Gina, this has been a treat. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. I, I, we, we did it, finally, after all this time. <laughs> hey, it had to happen. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm. What was that like might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely unusual situation, like Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake, or Jennifer, who accidentally killed someone, or Luke, who got caught smuggling cocaine. Real people in unreal situations. Listen and subscribe at whatwasthatlike.com.